Children's Church. And for those who remain, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 11 through the second verse of chapter 6. We're in a series where we're talking about uh, the theme that we are the Lord's, we are His. And what does that mean for singleness, marriage, parenting, sex, and life together in the family of God? What does this mean for all of our relationships? And we come now to this theme of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, this is God's Word. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the wonder of your grace. Lord, that we might not receive it in vain that we might be changed and transformed by it, that we too might be ambassadors for Christ, appealing to everyone around us to be reconciled to God. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a thing about a sermon on grace to a Presbyterian and Reformed congregation. I suspect that if you've spent any time in this tradition, you've gathered that we take great pride in the fact that we understand the doctrines of grace. But do we really understand the depth and the breadth and the height, the grace of the Almighty God? Would we recognize God's real, mighty grace, not if we just thought about it, but if we actually saw it, actually experienced it, actually beheld it, would we know it when we saw it? Or would we settle for something less? A few years ago, the spring on my garage door broke, which... If that's ever happened to you, you know that means you can't, like you're done. You just, you just call somebody to fix it. But the people that put in the garage door originally couldn't come out for like a week or two. And my neighbor gave me the number of this guy who like knows how to. And so he comes out on the cheap like the next day and replaced the spring. And I was like, yes, saved me some money. A few years later, uh, one of the components in the motor broke. I thought, well, I mean, it is old. So I called the same guy back out, and he replaced that. And then a few weeks later, the spring broke again. And I began to think, what, what's going on here? What This shouldn't happen. The, the spring should have lasted for many, many, many years. It had lasted for 20 at the beginning. So I called the people who actually originally installed the garage door, and they were more expensive, and they couldn't get out right away. And they come out, and they're like, oh, this is the wrong spring. I watched a whole lot of YouTube videos, enough to know that I don't want to replace a garage door spring. (laughs) It's dangerous. Um, But I didn't watch enough, apparently, to know what's the right spring or the wrong spring to put in. I didn't know. Because I accepted something lesser, quicker, cheaper, easier, that looked as good. It broke everything. Would we recognize God's real grace? Or have we settled for less? A a grace that we call grace is really something, though, that we think we've earned because we have suddenly begun to think that God owes us his favor. Or have we bought into a cheap, grace that we can just go back to every time we need a little bit more and it frees us to live however we want, to do whatever we want, to indulge whatever desire we want, knowing or thinking we can just always go back and get a little more grace. Or have we encountered the real, full, undiluted, full-strength, high-powered Grace of the living God in such a way that that we know the real thing. 
We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at God's amazing grace that changes everything. And the first thing I want us to consider is what God's grace actually is. See, even when we know that the the simple definition of grace, grace is unmerited favor. It is blessing or kindness or a gift that is given, which is not deserved. That's what grace is. Even if we recognize the, the dictionary definition of it, we still have a tendency in our sinful nature to make God's grace all about us. And we talk about deciding to, to follow the Lord. Or we talk about when, when we came to understand His grace and, and our, we talk about our response to God and, and how we live for Him. And we, we talk a lot often about us, not about the full, undiluted, high-powered grace of God. And when we act that way, we become like the child with the toy lawnmower mirroring his his dad one summer day mowing the grass and comes in and says, Mom, look at all that I've done. I mowed the grass. Well, he I mean, as cute and adorable as it may be, and as good as it is for building character and habits of mowing the grass later, he did not mow any grass. (laughs) Whatever favor he received from his parents was undeserved. But we talk about grace as if we've done all this great stuff. Look at how much I've helped. Look at how much I know. Look at how much I've done. But Paul here, throughout these two and a half paragraphs, keeps coming back to this theme. That this work of salvation, it's grace. Which is to say, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And it's interesting, as you read in any of the letters that Paul wrote, how little he talks about what we bring to the table and how much he talks about what it is that God has done in Christ. Because the reality is, There is nothing that we could offer. There is nothing that we can do. There is no way of thinking that can somehow impress God enough to force Him to bestow grace and favor upon us. If we are recipients of grace, if we are the beneficiaries of the salvation that He has worked, if we are reconciled, all of that is from God. The word all there is carrying a lot of water. It's not most of this is from, like all of it. There is no part of salvation. There is no aspect of salvation. There is no phase of life. There is nothing that you can point to in your life before you were saved, after you were saved, 10 years from now, there will be nothing that you can point to that you can take credit for except your sin. 
So how amazing is it that we read of a God who is about this gracious work for those who don't deserve it? How many times count it for us, to us, for our sake, that God does this great work, not for for himself, but for, for us, for those who don't deserve it. Look at verse 21, this great verse. For our sake, he made him to be no sin. Sorry, I need to read that again. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this, this great parallel, this chiasm going on where Paul is comparing us and Christ. Christ who knew no sin. He lived the perfect life. He left His glorious throne, the, the, the heavenly majesty, took on the form of a servant, took on human flesh, walked our dusty, muddy streets, and didn't simply perform above expectations. He lived perfectly. In no way, shape, or form did he fall into sin. But more than that, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God. He lived the perfect life. This is what theologians call the active obedience of Christ. That that this was on purpose. He came and he lived perfectly to demonstrate the righteousness of God in himself. Why would he do that? Why would he leave the glories of heaven where his righteousness is already well known? Why would he come and live this way in this world just to to show us up, just to make us feel worse about ourselves? Why would he do this? It tells us in the text, for our sake. He lived the perfect life for us. Because while he knew no sin, we know Lots of sin. And there is none of us. There is, there is not a single person in the history of the world, apart from Christ, who was able in their own flesh to fulfill the righteous requirements of God. If Jesus did not come and actively obey and fulfill all the righteous requirements of God's law for us, on our behalf, we could never stand before God. That's righteous. That's not all he did. It says, God, for our sake, made him to be sin. So so this Lord Jesus Christ, who in, in perfection lived, yet on the cross, he took in his flesh the sins of his people. This is what this means, that God made him to be sin. For he bore sin in his body. Not his sin, he didn't have any sin to bear. But all the sins of his people. And he offers himself as this perfect sacrifice. You read in the Old Testament about the sacrificial system, and if you pick up on anything, it's that if you're going to offer a sacrifice, offer an unblemished one. Don't go looking 
through your flock to find the, the lame sheep that you wanted to get rid of anyway and offer that. Find the perfect one, an unblemished sacrifice, and offer that to God. And in this life, there is no perfect sacrifice that we could offer, but Christ was perfect and offers himself. Ah. Why would he do this? He says that he could call down legions of angels to to set him free from the cross. Why doesn't he do it? Why would he endure that treacherous shame? Again, the text tells us, for our sake. Not just that he, he lived the life that we could not live. But he died the death that we deserve. What our sins have earned before God. This act of obedience, this sacrifice that theologians call the passive obedience of Christ, this active and passive obedience of Christ fulfills everything for us. It pays whatever penalty our own sin deserves but it bestows and credits upon us a righteousness that we could never earn so that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We might stand before him blameless and pure, his beloved children. And the way you receive this salvation to receive it by grace through faith. You believe, you have the faith that the God who would do such a thing would give this gift of salvation freely. Because if he didn't, none of us could earn it. All of this is from God. All of this is by grace. And what the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ does for us in our relationships, if it does anything, is it frees us to be honest about who we really are. It frees us to be honest about our sin. We don't like that. We don't like to be honest about our sin. We we try to deal with our sin ourselves, and so we rely on all kinds of unhealthy ways before God and in our relationships with others to deal with our sin. Sometimes we just play the martyr. Somebody calls us out for something and and so we, we start to heap more sin and shame on ourselves, thinking that if we do that, the people around us and maybe God himself will feel sorry for us. Oh, look at how hard it is for that person. Oh, yes, I know I lost my temper, but, but you don't know all the things I had to do for you. You don't know how hard I worked. You don't know the long hours that I, I toiled. And, and maybe if we just play the martyr... It'll, it'll make our sin go away 
It'll make people feel sorry. We, they won't bring it up anymore. Or we deflect. Well, I realize that I didn't keep my promise to you, but you have promises that you haven't kept to me. Let me make a long list of all of them because I've been keeping track. Or, or we start to compare. Well, just be glad I'm not like Joey's parents. You think this is bad, right? He was grounded for a month. At least I haven't, at least I haven't treated you like, like, like your dad treated your mom. We, and we start to compare. We make our sin less wicked. Or we just excuse it outright. This is who I am. This is is what you signed on for. And you just have to deal with it. But in every one of those cases, we have an example of someone who has traded the full, undiluted, high-powered grace of God for something cheap. And they didn't. And it leaves them always and ever on the defensive. And you know the grace of God for you in Christ. It frees you to not have to be defensive. You know who you are. You know that it was your sin that held him there on that cross. You know that it was your wickedness that moved him from his heavenly throne to live and die, you might be redeemed. You don't have to put on airs and you don't have to defend and you can be honest about who you really are. This might look like what Paul Tripp calls a lifestyle of confession. Where... We often hear of people um, bringing their their hurts to be. Hey, you did this thing, or you know, con- uh, the the culture of confrontation or intervention, where we we're going to other people to let them know all the things that that they've gotten wrong. But but what? How does it turn the tables if you adopted in your relationships a lifestyle of confession where you are the first to bring your own? faults and failings out into the open. Where you were humble. Where you took ownership of the things that you have done wrong. Where, where may, by God's grace, you don't even have to be told. Upon reflection, I realized the way I was talking to you the other day was absolutely dismissive. And I'm sorry. What it look like for you to have a lifestyle of owning up to your own sin? In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where Christian, the main character, uh, is accosted by Apollyon, Satan, the devil, on his road to the celestial city. 
and the fight is not going well for Christian. This great dragon is assailing him, and he is trying to defend himself. And, and it's not the ferocity of the dragon. It's the accusations. Pollyon starts bringing up all of Christian's failures along his journey. Didn't you lose the scroll of assurance? Didn't you do this? Didn't you do that? And Christian starts to wither under the torment, the shame that is being heaped on him until he remembers. And he responds and ultimately sends Satan fleeing with this rejoinder. You're right. I'm paraphrasing. I've done that, all of that, and more that you haven't even mentioned. But my Savior is great. He has forgiven me. He is going to welcome me into the celestial city with joy. And Satan has no response to that. That's what grace frees you to do. Yes. I am an angry person, and by God's grace, I will grow out of that. Yes, I am a lazy person, and by God's grace, yes, I am whatever. Whatever sin is yours, be it thievery, adultery, coveting, Christ, by His grace, you're forgiven. You can be honest about who you are in your relationships and recognize that that reconciliation, the reconciliation that God offers us, it doesn't involve you being right all the time. Because if you needed to be right, you would never be reconciled to God. He is the only one who is all right and all true and all perfect. But we, we are tainted by sin. And even when we are at our best, even when we think our arguments are unassailable, sin can creep in and use even our sense of justice to destroy the relationships around us because we come bearing a sledgehammer and not grace. What would it look like for you to be so steeped in grace that not only could you be honest about who you are, but that you could be so invested in seeing the relationship reconciled. That you're willing even forego your right to be right. Grace reminds us who we are, who God is. Who God is, is a God who doesn't leave us who we are. So it's not just that grace is this unmerited favor. God uses His grace to work in us something profound. God's grace changes us. And that's the second thing I want us to consider. God's grace does something. Again, we have a tendency in our sinful nature to make grace all about us. And we see it as uh, this 
well that we can go to that frees us to do whatever we want. Have you heard the saying, if you give that person an inch, they'll take a mile? You've heard this saying, right? If you give somebody a blank check, watch out. And it's that idea that that when you're, you're kind to someone, when you bless them, when you're gracious to them, and they take advantage of you, that's not good. It's not right. And when we treat God's grace as cheap, when we take advantage of it, it, it reveals more about who we are. It reveals the darkness of our hearts, that we would treat His grace with such dismissive selfishness. But Paul, who is drunk deeply of God's undiluted grace, says it does something different. It, it changes him. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Being reconciled to God, he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Or if you look here in verse 14, he says it all the more starkly, for the love of Christ controls us. that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. God's grace does a work so mighty in us that it changes the very reason we live. We used to live in our sinful nature solely for ourselves. And now we live for Christ. And that frees us. It seems strange to talk about being controlled by the love of Christ and, that, and to use the, the idea that that sets us free. And yet, if you think about it, everything else that we serve comes at a cost. When we indulge our own selfish desires, those chickens come home to roost. When we serve at the opinions of others, we're always on that treadmill of approval. When we serve idolatrous things, it always comes at a cost. But the pure, perfect, eternal love of Christ to serve that is glorious and redemptive. When we know His grace, we are free to live according to His unchanging, eternal love, not according to our sinful self. And what is amazing about God's grace is that not only does He reconcile us to Himself, but then He gives us the very ministry of reconciliation. The good news, the gospel of Christ that was declared to us and that we believe, He then entrusts to us in our Weakness and our frailty and says, now go out and tell everybody about it. Let the whole world know how gracious I am. And you might wonder, well, when when is God entrusting us with this good news? Paul tells us today, now is the day of salvation. God is working now. He has always been working. He was, and he hasn't stopped bringing people to himself. And he invites us to work together with him. Like that child with a lawnmower. Knowing that ultimately God's the one cutting the grass. And yet in his grace and in his kindness and in his fatherly care, he says, no, I want you here. 
I'm not going to shame you. I need you here. Work with me. Let's get the yard looking stellar. Let's renew the whole earth. He invites us to participate in that work as ambassadors of God. This is why Paul can say, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing what it means to worship Him rightly, knowing His glory and His might and His majesty, knowing His grace, we then devote ourselves to persuade others. They would know Him too. And if this means anything for our relationships, it means this. The grace of Christ frees you to be gracious to others. You don't have to always be on the attack. You can be gracious, overflowing with mercy and kindness and love to others. We don't, this doesn't come naturally to us. In our sinful selves, the, the way we respond to others when there are problems or when their sins become known is we judge them. Maybe we judge them overtly. I can't believe you would do such a thing can't believe you would say such a thing. I can't believe you would speak those words to me. Do you know who you're talking to? Sometimes we just judge them internally. Look down our nose at them. Avoid them. Behave like the Pharisee that invited Jesus over for a meal and think to ourselves, if he knew anything about this woman, Other times we, we, just, we just give guilt trips. Trying to, thinking that if we can just make people feel bad enough, their lives will change. Because that worked for us, right? No. But we just heap guilt and shame. Well, you always do this. You, you'll, ne- you'll never change. You know, I'll, you need to just get your act together. And we think that if we just accost somebody enough, that sinful heart that they have will just melt in the face of our unrelenting guilt trips. Or we just shame, trying to coerce, trying to force behavior, but not giving any consideration to what is in The grace of Christ frees us to be gracious to others, even when, especially when, their sins come to light. Especially when their sins weigh heavy on us. We can respond not with guilt, not with shame, but with kindness and forgiveness. Because we recognize that we have been forgiven much. It is a damnable lie that we in the church buy into this thinking that we were not that bad when we came to Christ and we're even less bad now. But we live like that sometimes, don't we? Not that bad. I'm not addicted to that. 
I didn't vote that way. I don't live there. Those aren't my friends. And we think that Scripture isn't talking about us when it says, no sin has seized you except what's common to man. When we see how God's grace has abounded to us in our particular sins, in the ways that they've manifested themselves in our lives, we can abound with grace to others when their particular sins come to light. Not to excuse. Not to say it's nothing. Not to say don't worry about it. But to call sin, sin. To respond to it with grace that forgives and reconciles. That's the ministry that God has entrusted to his people. The ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of drawing in, of making whole. Something that we cannot do in our own power. Something that we cannot force upon our children, that we can't force upon our spouses, that we can't force upon our neighbors. But we, working with God, who can make new creation. He gives us the authority of ambassadors to make an appeal. Come, be reconciled to God. Know His grace that changes and transforms, that forgives and heals. What kind of grace do you live out? What kind of grace is on display in your relationships? In the way you interact with your spouse during those times of conflict and frustration. In the ways you interact with your children when they aren't living up to your expectations. In the way you respond to your parents when they seem, yet again, to be so overbearing and unrelenting. To your neighbors, who only seem to know how to criticize. To your coworkers, to your classmates, to your roommates. What kind of grace do you display? Do you display to them a cheap grace? Do they see somebody who, for whom God is just a get-out-of-jail-free card? Do they see a, a grace that you have to earn but by being really, really good all the time? Or do they see a grace that can come only from a God who fulfilled all righteousness for us and bestowed upon us grace of being ministers of reconciliation. What do you display? Because the grace that you have received from God is the grace that you will live. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us live your grace. To know it. To be astounded by it to be moved and transformed by it. That we might not ever be content with a cheap grace or a false grace. That we might not live lives where we constantly feel like 
we are on the defensive or having to go on the attack, but that we can overflow with humility and bold invitation. Be reconciled to God because we ourselves in Christ know what that reconciliation is like. Make this so that our marriages, that our children, that our relationships with our parents, that our communities might be transformed by your amazing grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.